Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Time now to uh, look past our borders to see what's going on in other parts of the world. Jonathan de Burke Butler joins us uh, once again. Afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right. Now, uh, Nauru we're going to go to first, but it's really kind of, I suppose, to do with uh, more to, to do with New Zealand. You better tell us, where is Nauru and what's its part in this story? So, Nauru is a place, we, we've covered it before. It's a very small island north of Australia, and it was one of two islands that back in the early 2000s were um, awarded, shall we say, the privilege of becoming um, these offshore detention or processing centres, as the Paul Howard government in Australia at the time called them, right? So the rationale behind these detention centres was to stop what they called boat people coming from Southeast Asia into Australia, right? And they were Mm. going to be detained and processed in these and they were specifically told that they would never get into Australia, all right? Even if their applications for asylum were successful and they were deemed to have been persecuted, whatever it was, they were told they'd never get into Australia if they arrived near the shores on a boat, okay? They were always extremely controversial, right? And at their peak in about, at the peak in about 2014, there was about 1,200 migrants or asylum seekers or whatever you want to call them, refugees in the uh, detention centre. They call it a processing centre, but I'm going to call it a detention centre for the sake of argument. And and Australia doesn't own Nauru. Nauru is a... It's it's an independent state since 1968. So presumably Australia were paying them for this? There was was a deal done, yeah. yeah, And the other island was uh, was called Manus, and that was owned by uh, Papua New Guinea. Now, that Mm. one was deemed illegal back in 2017, and all the people were taken out of there, and they're now... Those that remain are in amongst the population in Papua New Guinea, right? So it's it's kind of similar in in, uh, Nauru as well, to be honest with you. But anyway, back at the peak of it, when there was about 1,200 people in this place, um, the New Zealand government offered to take some in, right? They said, look to Australia, look, you're having problems with this. You're clearly not going to take them, but we don't like the human rights issues that are surrounding this whole thing. So we'll take in 150 refugees every year. They signed the deal with under Julia Gillard's Labour government, right? And then shortly after that, Julia Gillard lost power and there was kind of a couple of um, prime ministerships of more right-wing, mm. shall we say, um, uh, uh, governments, all right? Um, and they never actioned on this particular deal that was done. The New Zealanders had always said, look, this deal is on the table, you can take it up any time. And the Australians said, no, we're not going to do it until earlier this year, right? So uh, the, the outgoing government under Scott Morrison belatedly accepted the resettlement offer in March. And now we finally have the first asylum seekers coming into New Zealand. Six men last week, four Rohingya, one person from Sudan and one from Cameroon, each of whom had been on the island for over eight years waiting. Wow. And Nauru is a tiny place. It's one of the smallest nations on Earth. Yeah, eight square miles, I believe. The population there normally is about 10, just over 10,000. And it's a very, very small place. The conditions were appalling, as you can imagine. And, you know, people were murdered in this detention centre. Many people uh, died by suicide. 
uh, and there was you know lots of medical mispractice as well which resulted in death so it's been controversial for a very long time and now why wouldn't Australia accept this deal because it didn't seem to cost Australia anything that was New Zealand was offering to solve their problem for them I have no idea I was thinking about this earlier on the only rationale I could come up with and it's purely my own is that the Australians might have looked at it and said well look if these people start coming whether you like it or not the, deter- the deterrent, i.e., you know, stopping people coming over in boats worked, right? Mm. It, it, it kind of stopped. I think possibly the Australian government might have looked at it and said, well, if people start coming back again, they'll know they only have to wait and the Kiwis will take them or somebody else will take them. You know, there was a deal done with the United States as well yeah. between the two detention centres. I think 450 people went to the US and then that stopped. So I don't know if that was the rationale behind it. But for some reason, they didn't do it for those uh, nine years. And um, these people have been waiting for a long time. So there's now, as I said, what was it? 1,200 back in 2014. There's about 100 left on the island. And it seems that those people are are going to come to New Zealand now. Yeah. And the the de facto detention centre is gone anyway, is it? Or, it's actually or, or, not, right? right? This is another controversial thing about it. They hired a US uh, group, shall we say, that looks runs prisons in the United States uh, and doesn't have the best reputation to come in and take that over. Now, it hasn't actually been used properly for a number of years. Mm. So it has been closed down in the real sense, but they're keeping it open just in case um, and they're running it but there's no people detained in the centre itself they're out and about in society uh, on the island of eight square miles yeah right Venezuela uh, we're going to uh, go to next and I suppose you could call a bit of good news from uh, Venezuela things are climbing down just a tiny bit yeah and it's certainly a change I I mean I went through a phase I think maybe about 18 months ago of of talking about Venezuela an awful lot so I said (laughs) I better stop until something actually changes um, it's an endlessly fascinating place. And I, and I have to say that, you know, when the war broke out, um, as everybody was looking at Ukraine and Russia, I might have even said it to you, the first place I looked to was Venezuela, because I said to myself, they're going to start cozying up to Maduro for his oil. Mm. And sure enough, it started happening straight away. I think it was it Cop himself yes, and Macron yeah, were best yeah. buddies uh, at, at that particular um, at that particular event. So at, at the moment... A deal was done last week during talks in Mexico that were brokered by the Norwegians, which I believe of all people, right? And the government and the opposition in Venezuela have signed a preliminary agreement uh, which will hopefully find a way out of the stalemate that they're in at the moment, all right? So it's a a simple sort of a thing at the beginning. So it's a statement requesting billions of dollars that were frozen abroad to be released to help with funding for social projects, food, medicine, housing, that kind of thing. So I suppose what they're doing in this instance is they're saying to the United States and the Europeans, look, we're going to try and find a pathway here, or we might try and find a pathway here to some sort of restoration to democracy that you will both like. Because there are people who, of course, will say that there was never not a democracy there, right? And that's there's an argument around that, okay? Um, 
the Americans and the European Union after the last election, I can't remember if it was the last two or just the last election, they basically said, look, we don't recognise the government of Venezuela anymore, so we're blocking funding and we're going to stop oil production there. The United States' reaction to this, the first thing they said was they welcomed it and they also said that oil company Chevron would be able to resume some activity in Venezuela, including importing Venezuelan crude into the United States. Okay, so, uh, yeah... (laughs) The 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 uh, oil is rolling even before actually any of this has been put in place yet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one sticking point at the moment, and the one thing that is, is, I suppose, the caveat around this is that there's been no progress made so far on presidential elections that are due to take place on in 2024. Okay, mm. Maduro obviously he's been there since 2013. He's probably going to run again. He's saying, if you want me to, you know look at allowing these opposition to come back into the fold for for presidential election, you've got to recognise my election, election, my previous election, you know, my term, Um, which I suppose in one way is fair enough. But then Mm. again, I suppose if governments do recognise that they're legitimising him and if he goes again and and holds sham elections, which a lot of people say they were, Will they have to legit? Will they have to recognise him? Do you know what I mean? So yeah. they're caught caught between a bit of a rock and a hard place. Well, but, but I suppose behind all this, like the ordinary people in Venezuela, like it, it's an economic catastrophe. Absolutely, and this is the point. To be honest with you, any of these uh, these negotiations and whatever went on behind closed doors, for, for, certainly from my point of view, the big result of this is that money will start flowing into the country now, and ordinary people on the ground who have been going over the borders and uh, refugees into Colombia, mm. something like two or three million, as far as I know, um, will finally get the medicine that they need and the food that they need. Yeah, uh, well, hopefully uh, that happens. Yeah, now, indeed. Algeria we're going to next, and 49 people sentenced to death. 49 people sentenced to death. This was over the murder, the lynching of a man by the name of Jamel Ben Ishmael. Okay, so Jamel Ben Ishmael, I don't know if you remember... Late last year, there were terrible forest fires all across southern Europe and, uh, Mm. of course, in North Africa as well. And this happened in Algeria during a heat wave in August. This poor individual had actually gone from his own state to the state or the region of Tizi Ozu to help out with these forest fires, right? These forest fires were very damaging. 90 people in total were killed during these particular, um, during this particular heat wave and the fires. Um, He went to help. Uh, somehow he had discovered that there was a rumour going around that this stranger from out of town had started the fires, right? And in order to clear his name, he went to the police station. He did all the right things. He went to the police station. He handed himself in, obviously, to try and clear his name. Mm. As he was being transported from the police station, the mob that had gathered outside attacked the police van, brought him out, beat him up and set him on fire. And he died from his injuries, obviously. Now, there was people, uh, you know, taking mobile phone footage of this. They were taking selfies of it while it was happening. And these people have now been charged and sentenced. 49 of them have been sentenced to death. There are 28 other defendants who are going to get jail terms of between 10, sorry, two and 10 years without parole. Um, so a lot of lives being affected here. Yeah, um, it's... Hard to know, like, how could 49 people even get at him? Yeah. I mean, how could they all be guilty of, of murdering this, this, this Well, man? I, I don't know. I mean, I, don't, I, never, I never saw the footage or yeah. the evidence, uh, you know, itself, to be honest with you. But obviously it was, you know, deemed 
by looking at the the mobile phone footage and whatever else was captured and witness statements obviously as well from the police that were there to protect him but were overwhelmed obviously um, that these 49 were the ones who uh, who should be blamed specifically for the murder. It is an interesting question, though, because there's 28 others who are only getting two to 10 years. What did they do or not do in order to receive the death penalty? Yeah, now, I suppose part of the wider picture here is that this video was widely shared in Algeria, I suppose. So a lot of people saw it and there was an awful lot of anger about it. The father mm. of, the, of the victim, Jamel Ben Ishmael, he actually came out afterwards and said uh, that he, he called for calm, which was quite um, quite a noble reaction, yeah. I suppose, yeah. uh, in this instant. Now, it should be said that they have been sentenced to death, but there hasn't been a, an execution in Algeria since 1993. There's been a moratorium on it, so it's unlikely to actually happen, and it's more than likely they'll end up spending life in prison. Right. Okay. Now, the, now the the, the Berbers are, are they somehow involved in this story, or at least in terms of yeah, well, people being blamed for that. Yeah. Well, there there was a number of you know there was speculation on how the whole thing started. So you know there was arsonists involved. Obviously, this poor guy as well. But there's a, there's a Berbers who are the majority in the state next door, to, or the mm. region next door to this particular uh, region, Tiziozu. And I think the Algerian government have a bit of a problem now. I don't with them. I don't know if there's a militant group there as such, um, but they were blamed for starting this particular fire. I don't know on based on what evidence, though, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure it's still been resolved uh, as to how they started. I imagine it's the normal way. Somebody throws a cigarette on the ground in the middle um, of a heat wave and off you go. Climate change. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. Uh, Israel, we're going to go to uh, next. And uh, a bus bombing, though, I suppose this is just part of a uh, again, a deteriorating situation uh, in that region. Yeah, it is. But I think what's noticeable about this is that something like this hasn't really happened that often since the you know the last what they call the second intifada which was mm. between 2000 and 2005 which, which was you know bus bombing suicide bombings all that kind of thing and resulted in that so-called peace wall being built of course and was finished in 2006 and that's that's actually worked to a great extent and uh, and has stopped this kind of thing so it's a, it's a strange one, but um, there was two bombings. The first explosion happened at 7am near a bus stop. This was all during rush hour, of course, for maximum impact. And the second blast was half an hour later, right? There was a teenage boy killed, a 15-year-old Canadian, I believe he was, an Israeli-Canadian, and then the 22 others were injured. Um, I think what's noticeable about it, as I said, is the fact that it's a, it's a bombing. Um, and it wasn't a suicide bombing. So these were um, packages that were left full of nails um, for maximum impact. Uh, and they were detonated by mobile phones, so they were detonated remotely. Um, the timing of it is also uh, very interesting in that it looks like Benny Netanyahu is going yeah. to be back. And um, he is coming back with a group of people who, uh, to say they're on the right, is an understatement. These yeah. are religious fanatics and right-wing fanatics who will take something like this and we'll use it as an excuse, I think, um, to um, increase the violence, which has been increasing this year anyway. It's been by far the worst year of violence between the two um, war- warring bodies for yeah. a very long time. Yeah, because, I mean, uh, the the amount of Palestinians who've died just since the late summer is in the hundreds. 100, uh, 170, I think, this year so far. 20, 29 Israelis. Yeah. So his reaction to that is hardly going to be to call for more talks. 
I, I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, no. yeah. And now he's got, um, you know, he's got the vote, so he's got the mandate not to. Uh, right, uh, London we're going to go to next. We don't actually visit it that often. Uh, the, and th- but the London Fire Brigade was institutionally racist. Yeah, this is an investigation that was launched off the back of a suicide of a firefighter called Jaden Francois Esprit. He was a young black firefighter and his family were concerned that he had suffered from bullying and this was the reason why he uh, he died by suicide. And this report, uh, which was run by a very interesting man called Nazar Avsel, he's he's a, a very liberal Muslim um, who I believe is the head of Manchester University or the Chancellor or whatever they mm-hmm. call it there. And um, he led this anyway and he said exactly what you said, that the London Fire Brigade was institutionally misogynist and racist and had a toxic culture that allows for bullying and abuse. Now, they interviewed about 2,000 people for this, mainly inside the London Fire Brigade, and they found a couple of examples. So one of what was going on, so one black firefighter had a noose put above his locker. There was a Muslim firefighter who had bacon and sausages put into his coat pocket and into his sandwiches, and a terrorist hotline sign was posted on his locker. And interestingly, a female firefighter told her female friends not to let male firefighters into the house to check smoke alarms because they go through women's drawers looking for underwear and sex toys. So this was just Crikey. some of the incidents that he spoke about. Now, he did draw a very important distinction between the London Fire Brigade and that other London institution, the Met, which has been coming under fire in recent years. And I'll quote this to you if I can, because I think it's a good indication of where he's coming from. He says, where there's been flagrant examples of police officers misusing power and allowing prejudice to shape their actions we did not find the same level of operational bigotry. So what he's saying is that the the racism and the misogyny was in-house. But yeah. it, it didn't affect how they answered the call of duty as such. Sure, and he I want, suppose and a he fire is a make, fire. Yeah, they're, they're not going he, to... Yeah, yeah, well, indeed. But he want, it's interesting that he wanted to make that, that um, distinction, I think, although it's not might not be the best benchmark to be yes. honest with you the London Met uh, Right so what should we look out for over the next week or so Yeah everything's happening on Thursday this week for some reason uh, Emmanuel Macron is going to Washington DC to meet Joe Biden um, so there'll probably be a bit of coverage of that The European Council President Charles Michel will travel to Beijing to meet Xi Jinping so that okay. could be quite interesting mm. uh, If he's whether, still in a job by then that is yeah. yeah absolutely and then on Thursday as well it's uh, World AIDS Day hasn't gone away Jonathan, thanks a million for coming in to us. Jonathan DeBarca Butler there. Moncrief. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. Weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.